Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by David Kerwin. David Kerwin is an independent scholar who has researched and published widely on Bible Jewish thought and philosophy and Hebrew language. His writings, both academic and popular, have appeared in periodicals such as Tradition, Hakira, and Jewish Bible Quarterly, and he blogs about language topics at balashon.com. Kerwin studied at Yeshivat HaKibbutz Hadati and currently works as a technical writer in the software industry. Born in Massachusetts, he lives in Rochester, New York, and San Francisco, but has made his home in Israel since 1996. He resides in Efrat with his wife and family. Kohelet, A Map of Eden, is his first book. Without further ado, David Kerwin. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. First of all, we'd like to promote your book. This is Kohelet by David Kerwin, as you can see. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, how you were influenced by Rabbi David Foreman, and why you chose to write a book about Kohelet, that would be amazing. Well, first of all, thank you both for having me on the podcast. I'm a, you know, I would say like a long time listener, first time caller uh, on the radio. So I feel like the same thing after listening to you guys for quite a while. Um, and I and I do like your your approach, the demystifying. I think it's a very interesting and very uh, necessary uh, approach to kind of pull away some of the layers. You can see things a little more in, in the way they actually are meant to be. Um, and hopefully that will come clear in, in some of the uh, discussion of my approach to Kohelet, where sometimes it might appear as being actually I'm adding, you know, unnecessary layers, but I think I'm actually you know kind of pulling them away in a sense. So um, just for the record, I I um, I'm not in. Uh, I'm, I'm not a rabbi, I'm not a professor, I'm not a teacher. Um, I have taught in the past many years ago, um, but I'm a real lover of learning Torah and studying different methods of, of approaching uh, questions, especially in, in, in definitions about Tanakh, language issues especially. Um, and I studied in uh, Yeshivata Kibbutz Hariti, which is uh, no, unfortunately no longer open, but it was a very unique special institution that closed about 15 years ago, and they had teachers from many different backgrounds who would teach Torah, I mean, Torah, Halakha, Talmud, everything in, in, in a lot of different um, methodologies, and I got these, I, it opened me to the idea that there's not just necessarily one way to learn about something, and and even, they would even have sometimes debates or, or panels where one person would say one thing, another, it, it encouraged debate, encouraged critical thinking, and I, I really got a lot out of my time there, uh, and even when I left the yeshiva and ended up um, entering, you know, regular uh, working life, but still had interest in Torah. So I it was inspired by teachers who would be able to, to use these kinds of interesting and um, uh, advanced um, methodologies. And um, about 10 years ago, I uh, was exposed to the teaching of Rabbi David Foreman, as, as you mentioned. Um, uh, he had just started Aleph Beta. I actually heard of a little bit before. With some of the they had done some he had, uh, some of the books came out before Aleph Beta. Some of the Shirim were online. I listened to them and was I found it really interesting. Uh, later became actually kind of close with him. He would visit Israel. I met with him a few times. Uh, participated in some internal forums to discuss some ideas. We'd have people to bounce off ideas, and, and so that was a, a really uh, a unique opportunity to be there when some of his ideas were not fully formed, just kind of experiments. And. But I continued on my way, you know, I occasionally give shirim in, in shul or in, you know, different places, but it wasn't, uh, I never had any uh, anticipation of, of writing a book. I, I published a couple of articles in tradition and, and other places, but never, a book was sort of not something I thought about. 
Um, and then about it'll be six years ago, this Sukkot, I uh, came home from reading uh, Kohelet. And once again, for the nth time, I was felt like I got nothing out of this book. What is this book for? The other Megillot are compelling and captivating, you know, whether it's the historical events of Ruth and Esther or the um, you know, emotional stories of Shira Shirim and Echa, but like Kohelet. There was actually one year, many, many years ago, I actually broke my glasses because I fell asleep in Kohelet and hit my head in the stender and <laughs> I broke my glasses. <laughs> so um, you know, I said this year, I can't, I can't be, it can't be this. And the truth is I wasn't even home. At home, I have a I have a rather large library, I have all kinds of things to look at. I was at my, I have a uh, brother-in-law who, you know, he's, he's a, he's a rabbi, but his, he's not really in the Tanakh area. He didn't even have a concordancia. So all I had was, you know, I had, I had the Megillah. That's all I had to look at. And I said, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to see what I can find. And it was like a little bit, little things started popping off the page to me. I started noticing all these connections to the opening chapters of Sefer Breshi, the first four chapters uh, of, you know, the story of uh, Adam Rishon being in the garden, the story of them sinning and being expelled from the garden, the story of the kind and Hevel. And I was like, why is this here? Like, I did, it wasn't like I, I was looking for something. I was just like, this is very strange. Some some verses were nearly lifted out of there, like, like you know, one for one copied. Uh, there were other words that were uh, repeating. There were thematic uh, connections, talking about rivers and talking about snakes and talking about all kinds of things. And I was like, this, this has to be something to it. But I didn't really know where it was going to go. So I... Um, I continued looking, found more and more connections, came home, started making notes about what these things were. I originally thought, you know, maybe this will be a, a Dvar Torah I'll give some uh, night. And then I thought, well, you know, all right, fine. Maybe it'll be a sheer. Okay, you know, it's a little bit bigger. Okay, an article. And then all of a sudden, I was like, I got a lot of stuff here. Maybe this actually would be a book. So together with some people in my community in Efrat and with, uh, and particularly with Rabbi Foreman and his team, I was able to try to, you know, flesh it out to sort of talk about what, um, you know, uh, where does this go? What does it mean? As expanded, even sometimes beyond the scope of Kohelet, it was um, becoming more and more. And that was really where I basically was based on the idea of Rabbi um, Foreman's idea of intertextuality. That was what I really discovered, that the, the idea of intertextuality is um, where one text by similar uh, uh, words, uh, phrases, uh, themes, uh, structures is trying to can shed light on another. Sometimes both will shed light on another, and sometimes one will shed light on the other. Uh, a famous example of this is, is, is certainly uh, the story of uh, Megillat Esther and the story of, of Yosef. That's a very famous one. A lot of people talk about this because it's if you read it, it's hard to miss. The stories of the language is similar. There's stories of you know a um, a, a Jew or a, you know somebody from, from Israel in a foreign palace and how do you deal with the challenges of Galut? And, and so, and, and when you read it, you say, oh, the, the, there's no way the person wrote because that wasn't trying to make you think of the story of Yosef. But why, that it wasn't enough. So what, why was the story of, um, why was the author of Kohelet trying to make me think of the, of the story of, of Adam Rishon, of the beginning chapter of Rishi? And that was a challenge. At first, I wasn't sure. Question. Um... When you said that Aleph Beta was involved, did you have a relationship with them at that time? Or did you like hand in the material, email like Aleph Beta and they kind of, how did that work? I'm just wondering if you had a relationship with Aleph Beta at that time. 
I did. I had a relationship just like as a student of Rabbi Forum, but nothing official. I would come to his shirim. I had participated in some uh, so of his events. You presented the ideas, and then they 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 helped you with it. Yeah, it wasn't it, it wasn't even originally a manuscript. It was originally just um you know we had a like a video session where there was a bunch of people who were had shared ideas. We, he has a number of these forums where people can where he can bounce off his ideas. Other people can share theirs. Oh, okay. Um, very cool, very cool. And I, I think I might have actually one of the first ones to share my own ideas. I wasn't an employee of Aleph Beta, but it was an opportunity. Because it just seems so fitting for Rabbi Foreman, because the intertextuality stuff is that's Rabbi Foreman's bread and butter, and so it was really a, um, you know, I knew that he would be the person to ask about something like this. Really cool. Sorry to interrupt you, by the way. I apologize. No, no, no. Please, please. Um, I, I want to say something at the outset. I, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't mention it before. Um, you know, you you have a, I mentioned Kohelet, and I think it's important to mention to discuss at least briefly the question of of authorship. Um, you know, it's it, some people find that very compelling. They find that the focus of everything. They always want to talk about any biblical book. They want to talk about authorship. Others find it less uh, of interest. I actually just heard your very interesting interview with with Dr. Erica Brown. Uh, I found that uh, you know a very interesting comparison between the way we each spoke Kohelet. Why uh, there not only is Professor Erica Brown, but Dr. Yoni Grossman also I think, just came out with a book on Kohelet, also by Corin. Why does it all happen at the same time? I don't know. Why? I mean, this is not a new project for me, but I guess maybe this is one of the books that's last likely to be tackled. And so they, you know, everyone's sort of looking at it now. <laughs> anyway, um, Dr. Erica wasn't so interested in um, authorship. Um, I'm not focused, hyper-focused on it. Um, I would say there's a difference between authorship and author's intent. I think it's a really, really important thing. And this goes, I think, up to your, your question about demystifying things. You know, in other words, I'm not going to say that the author that the Kohelet, if you just take that Kohelet, it was written by the, the nature of what we say it was written by, let's say, by Shlomo Amela. And I, in addition to my writing of the book, I have a blog where I discuss called Balashon, where I discuss the origins of Hebrew words and phrases, uh, the history of Hebrew, Hebrew words. I'm very, very much aware of the significance of language, and I can't ignore that there are many words and uh, structures in the in the book of Kohelet which point to late authorship. They borrow from Aramaic, they borrow from from Persian. There's things there that just don't fit in early description. But I'm not really focused on the, you know, who actually necessarily compiled it. And there's, there's opinions in, in Chazal which talk about that, you know, Kohelet was written by Shlomo but it was maybe um, uh, Chizkiyahu wrote it. There's even a, a, a place in Avot Rabbi Natan which talks about how Anshia Knesset were involved in, in authoring it, which certainly were, was, that's a late period. That's that in and of itself doesn't bother me. It just doesn't. It doesn't. You know, like I famously use the approach to say of Robert Soloveitchik in the opening to to uh, Lonely Man of Faith, where he just says those issues don't don't bother his faith. What I can say, in terms of, and not about authorship, but in terms of author intent, that when you read Kohelet, mm -hmm. I have no doubt that you are supposed to think about Shlomo Melech. It doesn't mention Shlomo, but there is no one else who fits the the king described in the book like Shlomo Melech. And there's some very basic evidence of that. For example, who was the king in Yerushalayim, the son of David? So there wasn't the only thing, the only king in Yerushalayim, the son of David, was Shlomo. But who built that many things? Who who had so many wives? Who had so many? Who had these huge projects? Who had you know? Who had such wisdom? You know, if you're talking about the way that the book is described, it's it's Shlomo, and I think that that's what I want you to read it as. So when very I nice. started these, go on. Very well said. So so when I. When I started to think about the comparisons between Kohel and Bereshit, I'm thinking about the comparisons between Shlomo and Adam, Shlomo Melech and Adam Rishon. 
And that was something I never really considered before I started looking at the book. But then they also came kind of, uh, you know, jumped out at me, these, these, these comparisons. Both were um, universal figures. You know, I never showed him certainly universal in the sense that he was the only man at the time. And Shlomo was probably the most universal of all the, at least the Jewish biblical figures. Maybe, you know, not a fair Koresh, but certainly the Jewish biblical figures, there's no one else who had that scope of Shlomo Amelach, you know, in terms of, you know, everyone coming in from all over the world and, and, and building a Ben Amidash that everyone would come to. This is something that's universal. But they also both had their downfalls. Um, and the downfalls was as tragic, you know, the, the, the trajectory of down was as, was, as, it was as sad as the trajectory up for the potential that they had. And in a sense, both of their downfalls were um, connected to a search for knowledge. Uh, you know, little, Adam Rishon was literally reaching for the tree of knowledge, taking something from the tree of knowledge that he wasn't supposed to take. And Shlomo Melech's story is more complicated. I get it a little more into the book, but his, we view him as a very wise king, but it's not so simple. And even Chazal are very critical about how he uses wisdom. They criticize his story about the... Um, the, the judgment with the two women and the baby. They, uh, you know, talk about how what he did with, uh, how he connected to, to various people and what he told, and said, they even go so far to say that he wasn't necessarily worthy of Olam Abba, which is kind of crazy to think about it, but they, if, I figured there's nothing I could say about Shlomo that would go that far. So I, I felt a little bit free reign to be, to be a little bit critical, but just from looking at the story. Um, and then yet, both Adam and Shlomo were kind of, were exiled from their homes and, you know, from their place, from their place of God in a sense. And so when I, when I looked at Kohelet, which is very critical, by the way, of the search for knowledge, it, it basically says it's pointless. There's no, what, you know, all the search for knowledge, you think you're getting somewhere, you're not going to get anything from it. So Shlomo was saying, you know, what was the point of it? But who could, who could he identify with? He had to go back and say, I'm going to write a book in the style of someone who could identify with my life. He probably couldn't think of anyone better than, than Adam Rishon. Um, and so I think that the book of Kohelet is written in a way as if Shlomo is echoing or channeling or whatever you know, whatever verb you prefer to use, the life of the life of Adam Rishon, and and that's something that's makes that makes the the linguistic connections in the book so uh, compelling. You know, if there wasn't, if it was just a coincidence, you might just say, okay, well, I don't know what's going on, but their lives their lives have a lot of parallels. So that's something that that kind of um, came out to me as well. So I'd like to hear, if you can, um, some of the examples of, you know, the narrative, how they connect. You don't, you could say it outside, you don't have to, you know, pull it up. But also um, the name Hevel means vanity and futility. I mean, it's been translated in many different ways. We heard Erica Brown's, which I find to be more compelling. Um, why would Adam give his son such a name? So that's another point that you brought up in the book. Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. Um... When it comes to, uh, first I want to talk a little bit just about the structure of the book. I know that a lot of people find the book very, very confusing um, and, and even tedious because it just seems to go from topic to topic. I, I didn't speak to Erica Brown directly, but I did see uh, Professor Yori Grossman at the, the um, Yume the Tanakh conference uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, and I was very glad we had a few minutes to talk to him. And I said, I kind of, I pitied him. I, I, I felt bad for him because he, he had to write a book about Kohelet in order, the same way that Dr. Rekharam did. They had to write it in order of chapters. And it's not, it's very difficult to write in, in that way, and to, to write a book about Kohelet that way, because it doesn't seem to have, I mean, you can put a structure in it, but it doesn't seem to have a structure. Repeat itself, they go back and forth. So 
one of the things I wanted to understand was why was it written in such a strange way? And this goes to, I think, goes to answer your question um, about Hevel. Um, when Adam sinned, he received, an, he and, his, and the Chava received a number of punishments. But I think the most serious of the punishments would probably be the introduction of death into the world. There's different ways to interpret whether man was going to die or not, but certainly, you know, there was uh, death is associated with the eating of the eating of the fruit. So death is introduced. But who is the first person to die? It's not Adam. It's not Chava. Hevel. It's Hevel. Hevel dies. How would how would Shlomo how would Adam have felt? Feeling the responsibility of the death of his son, you know. Imagine, I mean, you can imagine Pastor going to like a shiva, someone who not only lost a child, but let's say they lost a child because of something that happened that they were guilty of, drunk driving, an accident, something where they thought they would be inconsolable. They wouldn't be speaking, you know. When you go to a shiva of someone who's you know lived to ninety, then they tell you their stories about where they were when they're young, and when they get older, and the story it's sequential, it makes sense. You go to a shiva of someone who lost a child, and certainly someone who's feeling guilty for, the, for what happened, it's going to be all over the place. And that's what I think is going on in Kohelet. And that's why I think that he repeats the name Hevel, Hevel, Hevel over and over again as sort of this plaintive cry of mourning for his lost son. That's what he. That's what Shlomo would imagine that Adam Harishon would have done. Right. Now, you asked an interesting question, which I had to address about why would anyone choose the name Hevel? As you said, it can mean futility, it can be vanity, it can mean pointlessness. But as Dr. Ekman pointed out, and I agree, the basic meaning of Hevel in the Tanakh is breath. Hevel Piv is, is literally is, is someone's breath. So why would someone name their son breath? That's kind of a strange name. The and, and certainly it's not a positive association, the name Hevel. It has a, you know, certainly a, generally associated with things like fertility and vanity, even if it doesn't literally always, you know, something that just literally means breath. So there's an approach to names in the Tanakh, which I think is really important. How, how does the name reflect what someone, what the parent thought when they were born versus reflecting what happened to them later in life? And sometimes it could be a literary device. And I think that's not so crazy. There are times, you know, maybe someone, you know, we see a lot of times in the Tanakh that people had one name when they were born with and they got another name. So maybe they got a name to reflect, you know, they were called something later on. That's, that's certainly possible. And there's examples in the Tanakh where that, very likely happened. Davia, for example, my name. Is, people say actually it wasn't, he, he might have had a different name in the beginning and then his name was changed. That's fine, but this is a different story. Uh, I think a good parallel example is um, the, the names of uh, Eli Melech's sons in the Book of Ruth, Machlon and Kilion, which are very, also very negative names. And some people can find a positive spin on them. You know, maybe it doesn't mean disease and destruction. Maybe it means, you know, Machal's, Machlon could be like from a hole, from dance, you know, something happy. But the, the idea is that you could have a positive name that ended up having negative associations later on. That's what I think happened with Hevel. I think, again, this is my own sort of midrash, but I don't think it's so far away from the shot. And certainly it's something that spoke to me from the text. And I think that's what basically we're, we're, we're inspired to do when we read the Tanakh for the first time with new eyes. That's something we could do. Isn't it? So there's an interesting midrash, which I think is actually fairly close to the shot, or at least it's not far from it. It, it points out that that when it, referring to the birth of Cain, it says that um, that Chabal uh, was pregnant and then gave birth. But with Hevel, the second child, it only says she gave birth. So the, the 
because I'll say that, that she, this might have been twins. And, you know, again, we've seen tension between twins before, or later in the, in the, in the uh, Tanakh, so it's not crazy to think that Kain and Hevel could have been twins. Even if not, I think this idea still works, but it's, it's just a little stronger image if they're twins. What you have here is these, you, you can imagine a scenario where a difficult birth, you know, certainly in biblical times, births were not easy. We see it with, 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 uh, with, and, with uh, uh, Yaakov and Esau, you see it with uh, Tamar's children, it was difficult. So imagine a child, is, it's a difficult pregnancy, the child is born, she's not sure if he's breathing. And then he breathes. It would be a praiseworthy thing to call him heaven. This is something he's, he actually has breath. Who would have, who would imagine the child they didn't know was going to survive has breath? And then he lives his life. He's the one representing breath. He's he's it's it's a it's an amazing thing. It's something they appreciate. However, breath is fragile. Breath is is temporary, and in the end, he passes away like a breath. In other words, he his life was was futility because he didn't survive. But that same futility, that same fragility was what re represented his life in the beginning. So I think that can potentially be a way to explain why a parent would give his name to a child as something that wasn't so, um, you know, so positive. Clearly, this is within a literary framework of, you know, I don't think it's likely someone today would name their child Hevel because of breath and, you know, and that Nadu. But certainly within the, within the framework of Tanakh, I think it works both for the birth and for his, his later life as well. Fascinating. Um, I wonder with Kohelet how kind of, um, I mean, uh, Dr. Brown alluded to this. I'm wondering if you would maybe put this together that Hevel also kind of changes meaning as Kohelet goes on. It starts off, it starts off as negative, but then sort of becomes somewhat positive in the, towards the end. I wonder if I, there's a. I didn't sense a change in the meaning of Hevel, um, in the book. And the truth is, I really did see a lot of differences in the book from beginning to end. Um, in terms of, by the way, in terms of uh, Dr. Brown's theory about this, I think, you know, she, her name of the book is, is, is The Search for Meaning, yes. which she finds in the book. I, if I had to give a similar, if I had to give a parallel um, subtitle, I would have called it The Search for Knowledge. Because The Search for Meaning, meaning is arrived at. Knowledge is a very different thing and has, has a, there's, there's a lot more danger in The Search for Knowledge as, as the book of Kohelet uh, described. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Um, one of the things I would say, though, is that is that about the end of the book, at least, there are people who sometimes view that the very end of the book, you know, about the uh, uh, you know, the whole point of man is to keep the mitzvot and fear God. And that's like tacked on, not relevant. Some people even view it as a separate author. Uh, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think it makes sense. I think it's, it's the message of the entire book. You have someone... I think you have to first of all, when you're looking at when you're looking at Kohel, you have to remember that, or, or I, I think you understand it's written very cynically at times. So sometimes people will say, "Oh, here he says eating and drinking and, and having festive is a good thing," and other times he says it's a bad thing, or you know, here a woman is a good thing and something is a bad thing, and they say, you know, Chazal say it was contradictory, maybe it shouldn't be included in Tanakh. Other people say it's it's reflecting different voices. There's books about how it's, you know Kohel's different voices. I don't see it at all. I just see like he's someone saying, "Yeah, you know," almost like you know, winking at you or saying, "Oh, yeah." wonderful life if you have a you know eating and drinking as much as you want look where it gets you in the end you know he's being a little cynical a little sarcastic which is reasonable um and so the i think the tone is fairly consistent but the main message of it is is that what did what did kohelet think all he had to do he was if it's shlomo all he had to do was follow god's wishes god gave him everything and he blew it certainly adam Rishon did the same thing literally one mitzvah you had one chance one mitzvah and 
and he threw it away. If 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 Shlomo Chanan was saying what what better verse that call Adam? What better verse could represent Adam Rishon's life than the very end, which is saying if he just follows God's mitzvah. Now this is not about just following the Shulchan Aruch. It means what is it? It's not saying halacha disconnected from from our humanity. Both Shlomo and Adam Rishon had an, an a very unique connection with God. They had a they had a special relationship that almost no one else in the world would know. Shlomo, you know. God walked with Shlomo, with Adam Rish in the garden. Shlomo had built the Beit Dash and had a very special connection with him. And they lost that intimacy. They had, they didn't have to go that path. They didn't. Adam didn't have to eat the fruit. Shlomo didn't have to go with all these four entanglements with the wives and the political connections. And he didn't have to oppress the people. He could have just. All he needed, all they probably all they wanted was that connection. So to, the mitzvah is representing the love they had, not about some you know external requirement to keep this mitzvah or another. It's about losing the connection. If you, I'm sure people who've had you know, a marriage and something happened with that marriage and they look back at their life and they, and they got divorced or something, and they say, you know, because something infidelity or whatever, anything. And they're like, what did I do? I had everything. How did this happen to me? That, that's what Kohela did. Kohela's looking back and say, I had everything. How did this happen? Amazing. Okay. Um, so you pointed out that there are also thematic similarities between Kohela and the story of the spies. Can you elaborate on this? Sure. Um, so I wrote this whole thing about Kohelet and, and Breshi, and I thought, okay, well, here we go. And I thought that was, you know, I could wrap it up with a bow. It would work, work pretty well. And then I noticed something which I couldn't ignore. It's probably my my linguistic side of me said, you can't just let this one go. There's a verb that appears in Kohelet a few times and, and in very few other places in the Tanakh. And that verb is a loaded verb. It means something which has, you can't ignore it. It's the verb tor, tafla rish, latur. And, uh, I have a special connection to Parshat Shlach. I've had, for some reason in my life, I had to give like a million Divrei Torah on Shlach. It was always the one that came up for some for some reason or another. And Latour is a key word in Parshat Shlach. It both describes what the spies had to do and also what we are um, admonished against doing in the in the closing of this Parshat Shlach with, with Tzitzit. Lotatur, it, it, the, the in Parshat Shlach certainly the uh, the Torah chooses to use Torah intentionally. In Sefer Devarim it uses the Ragel to spy. That's literally a spy. The Torah the, the Torah isn't really to spy. It's more to scout. It's, it's actually that search for knowledge that that is mentioned in Kohelet. And so It's not about. It wouldn't make sense. Don't spy after your heart. But to search for things you're not supposed to be searching for. That's Kohelet. <laughs> that's that's Adam Rishon. What are you doing going over that tree? What are you looking for? Why are you heading over there? And so I was like, okay, well, what's happening here? Why is why is the spy somehow connected to this? And little by little, I found a number of, of, of connections. I'm just going to look at them for a second because I don't I remember them uh, uh, immediately. But there's like a, there's about six seven connections between the stories. So they both if I look if I compare the stories of Adam Rishon and the spies, they both have a quest of knowledge for good and bad. Uh, the, the Adam was looking for the tree of knowledge of good and bad. And the spies were told to search about good and bad in the land. They both acquire fruit. Oh. About, you know, how they took the fruit, and they supposed to take the fruit from the um, from the from the land. They both ignore God's command. They have they're both they're told to do something, and they and they do they do something else. Their punishments were similar. Both of them were initially threatened with punishment of death, and the punishment they received it, but it was delayed. Adam didn't die right away. 
Chabad didn't die right from eating the apple, but they did die eventually. And the door of the, the generation of the spies, you know, God wanted to kill them. And Moshe got them to put it off the killing, but they still did die. They just didn't die like, you know, 40 years or 38 years before they actually had died. So that's similar. They were both expelled from God's, or prevented from entering God's land, but not just prevented from entering God's land. They both had a sword, you know, the sword of the, uh, the Kuvim and the sword of the uh, uh, Amalekites and the Sanim. They were the ones who prevented them from entering the land. And all those connections just said, okay, there's definitely something happening here. These are very similar stories. And when I started comparing it to the story of Shlomo, I realized that there was there were stories um, uh, there as well, uh, connecting also search for knowledge, um, you know, betrayal, um, and uh, taking things that didn't really you know belong to you. So I was able to make in the book I, said, I make some tables where you compare these different these different uh, these different themes. What I think is interesting though is that there's one last thing at the end of the uh, story of the spies and the story of Adam Rishon, which, which is a similar parallel. They both end with stories of clothing given to them by God. In the story of, of, of Adam Rishon, it's literally God gives them clothing. And in the story of, in, in, after the story of the spies, God gives them the mitzvah of tzitzit, the mitzvah of wearing the clothing. In the book, I discuss a lot about how this idea of clothing helps sort of, is a path to maybe rectify some of these sins. And there's a lot of discussion of clothing in the book. Um, in, in various uh, uh, places, as well as with Shlomo as well. He also has a torn coat later on. There's a lot of things happening. Um, and um, and this is uh, another connection between all these stories. Beautiful. So I want to switch gears to another topic, which is the Ashkenazi communities uh, read Kohelet on the holiday of Sukkot. And there are many reasons given for you know why this is. Uh, why this is the custom, but why do you feel the themes in Kohelet align with this holiday? Okay, it's a good question. I, first of all, I want to be clear. I, I don't the, the, the historical reasons why um, Kohelet was chosen. I don't know. If, I, I I can't say with any certainty that these are the reasons why they're chosen. All I can say is, if you ask me what book should be read in Sukkot, I would pick Kohelet. <laughs> it's it's um you know it speaks to me. It seems so you know uh, like it's it's exactly it's a perfect fit. Maybe there was a reason, maybe it was just the last Megillah to find a place. You know, you have to find a place to read Kohelet. And, you know, because Esther is going to be obviously read in Purim and, and uh, you know, Shirashim is for the spring and, and Echa, but like, but either way. So I think that we just, we just actually read uh, this past week, right? Uh, last week, um, this week. You, you, you have, well, I'll, I'll actually jump a little bit at the end. You, one of the most important things about the Shlomo's life and this is something Chazal go over and over again, is that he um, he ignored the laws of the kings, right? Those kings are not supposed to amass wives, uh, have a lot of wives, amass gold, horses. And Shlomo famously, according to Gemara and Sanhedrin, but I think also this is fairly the shot of what happened with him. He basically, you know, explicitly ignored these rules. He 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 decided on his own that he would be able to um, to handle the consequences of those laws, and to his you know, man, it, it worked out terribly. Um, what's interesting though is if you look at those laws and what you're not supposed to do and why you're not supposed to do, the king is not supposed to like his heart shouldn't be uh, uh, lifted above his brethren and so on there are linguistic parallels very strong linguistic parallels to what we just read this past about Parashat Ekev I'm not sure when this, when, when this is going to be released but that we just read Parashat Ekev and there's, it's, it's a very very similar passage and the people 
of, of Amisrael are pretty much warned to not, they don't, they're not mentioned about, um, you know, amassing wives and tremendous amounts of gold, but they're warned about the, the risks of um, affluence, which I know you guys have talked about also, that the risk of affluence to a nation that's about to enter the land is very serious. And it talks about how, you know, you're gonna have you're gonna have herds and flocks and they're multiplied, your silver and gold is going to increase, which is very similar to the uh what the king is gonna have to deal with. Uh, your heart will grow hotty, Ram which is very similar parallels to the king. And and the risk is you're gonna forget God, which is pretty much what happens to, to Shlomo later on, right? It's it's almost a similar thing. But so the idea is that we have a scenario where the king has warnings, but those same warnings ultimately apply to us individual members of Amisrael as well. What's interesting though is that one of the one more warning that the people get which the king do not get is that you're going to uh, build houses right you, the risk of building houses suddenly appears in uh, as a sign of prosperity and that doesn't the king is never warned against building a house in Sefer Devarim but that's exactly what got Shlomo into trouble right in other words he built his own house he built his house bigger than the house of uh, of the Beit HaMikdash, and the, pro the project of building the Beit HaMikdash was what ended up leading to the oppression of the people, which caused them to revolt. You could, there's a lot of Chazal Midrashim which talk about him. They say that the night that the, uh, the Beit HaMikdash was conceived, uh, was built, dedicated, he, he, that was when he had uh, the, the, the ancestor of Nebuchadnezzar was born. In other words, the, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash was built into its construction in the first place. And so there's a real danger in building houses. You don't find people building houses in the Tanakh and in the Torah from Yaakov Avinu in a very small esoteric passage we're looking to now when he goes to a place called Sukkot, he builds a house. That's the first time you see someone building a house. And there's no verbs, I mean, there's verbs about talking about if you build a house and there's houses and things, but there's no case of someone building a house from Sukkot until Davina Shlomo. That's the next time you see a description of someone building a house. The Torah is not interested in houses. Houses are a risk of, of have a risky. You build a house, who built the house? There's a famous thing. If, 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 if the house is built and God built it, but it's easy enough to forget that God built that house. If you, if this is a, this, this came to me as a bit of a shock when I first read it. I mean, I, I read it before, but it never really, it, it lands on me every time I think about it now, you know, Tisha not long ago, I think about this a lot. David wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a bit of a gosh. God says, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't, this isn't for me. This is for you. I was perfectly happy in an old way. I was happy in a year. I was happy in a tent. The house, this is for you. It, and the consequences of building a house are on you. I'm, God later finds himself in the house. It's not a, it's not a question that God associates in the house, but we, we took that risk. It's extremely similar to the peril of you don't need a king. You could be, God doesn't say we have to have a king. You have to have, you know, you have the leadership, but the king is a risk. And the end, Shmuel is very angry that they accept the king. We end up having a king. We believe the king had become, it's become entrenched in Judaism. You know, Mashiach as a king, as a goal. Made of is something we, we wish for. But both those things are not something that God, has, God wanted. That's something that we, we want. It's kind of like we have a parent who, who, who um, you know, tells a kid, you want that toy, you want that thing. Okay, you're going to, you have to understand the risk of having it. So, you know, anyway, that's, so I think the idea of Sukkot is when we take a, we take a breather. We have a harvest festival, the, the highest peak of abundance of, of affluence throughout the entire year, and instead of sitting and enjoying it like a normal person would do to suddenly enjoy this thing, no, 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 you're not just going to 
you're going to leave your house. Think about where you were in the Midbar. I know you guys are big Rambam fans. I'm also a really big Rambam fan. Um, the um, the Rambam Moreda Bukhim has a very, very, uh, uh, very sharp explanation for Sukkot, which most people don't quote because it's not the most fun thing to talk about on Sukkot, so most people don't hear it. But I don't know if you're familiar with what he says. He says, he basically says that, why do we sit in Sukkot? Remember the difficult times in the Midbar. He compares it to Mara. He says it's like Mara. The reason we Mara is to remember how difficult it was in slavery, the reason we sit in Sukkot is to remember how difficult it was in the Midbar. When we didn't have houses, he, the, the, the positive aspect is the, is the, is the, of the Arba Mini. That's about Eretz Yisrael. But, the, but the, the Sukkot is not a positive thing. It's a difficult thing. He says, that's why God gave us Shemini Yatzerah. So we have one chance to sit in houses like, like, you know, like good people, that people can actually enjoy things. But when you get seven days of out being out, that's only one day inside out we can actually enjoy ourselves. How would the that's Rambam the explain, though, how would the Rambam explain, like, Simcha Shoevah, all the Simcha associated with the Chag? How would that fit? He, well, because, again, most of it's. I would say it's similar to Pesach. Pesach has a dual nature, where, on the one hand, we, we talk about how free we are, on the other hand, we're constantly remember how we were slaves, right? Where we sit, we do, we sit in, 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 in the, where Yashvi Misubin, but we also eat matzah and maru. We, we, we have the, you know, there's, there's a duality because if you only had one side of it, you would not remember the other side. Pesach and, and Sukkot are not supposed to be Tishabah. They're not supposed to do, and be miserable all the time. But if you just had a holiday, you would not, he, he talks about this. I think actually he talks about it in, in, um, not in Morna Bukhim, but talks about it in, in, in the, the Mishnah about how it, you, it has to not be a uh, Simchat Keras. Keras in modern Hebrew is like your gut. You know, if, some, if someone's got a big gut there, they have a Keras. So it, 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 to, in order to prevent Sukkot from being a holiday of the Keras, of being a holiday of your gut, just eating, you have to have the other aspects. You have to have the aspect where you remember how difficult things were and what, how you got to the where you are. You have to remember that it's not, you, you're not the, uh, you know, it's very easy to imagine a landowner who suddenly, you know, has all the fields, gets all the, the harvest, and suddenly feels great. To easily forget God, that's that's what God, that's what the, we just read about. That's what we're warned against doing. We're warned against forgetting God in, in in the abundance. So Sukkot gives us a chance to take a break, and and I think it actually goes even further. I think that's the purpose all the way. I think it's the purpose of Yom Kippur to take that break. Tishrei is the month of, fest, of, of the festival month. But why do we stop eating in the middle of you know who's telling you to stop eating? The food's already finally all summer. You've been waiting, you're working really hard. The food's finally no, you're going to stop eating. And even Rosh Hashanah, if we want to go a little bit step further, it's not, I don't mention the book, but I, Rosh Hashanah, I think, is also like that. Every month, you're supposed to do, according to, uh, in the Midbar, talks, every month you're supposed to do blow and the, the, the trumpets. But there's a difference between Shrua and Tkia. Every month you do Tkia. Tkia is a happy occasion. The only Rosh Hodesh that you're supposed to do Shrua, Yom Shrua, is the first of Tishrei, which would normally be people like, you know, it's supposed to be, if, that, if the festive blowing is, is, is Tkia, and the um, the sign of war, the sign of trouble is true. Why are people, why would anyone be that? Like you think of all the months to, to, to blow tequila, you do a tequila to go on Tishrei. No, 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 no. You're going to do, you're going to do Trua to slow down, guys. Take a break. You're not going, you're not jumping into the, into like, you know, Scrooge McDuck jumping into the, you know, to the, into the, <laughs> the gold coins. You're, 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 you have to take a break. Think about things for a minute. Don't rush into abundance. It's a real risk. It's a, it's a terrible risk. We see it with the Dom Rishon. Adam had everything. He had everything in front of him. Every tree in the world, but it, he wasn't satisfied with that. He, he needed the one he couldn't eat. Shlomo had everything. He had God's house. He still needed the foreign gods and on the women. What is going on? And that's what that's what Sukkot comes to teach us. It's a, it's a somber holiday with a, with a possibility of hope, which I think is the message of Koala too. A somber book with a possibility of hope.
Yeah, and to your point, I think there's a anxiety of uncertainty when it comes to the harvest season, because you you're really just you're relying on Hashem, right? You don't you don't know what's going to happen. You I don't know if it's going to be a good season or a bad season. Um, but then ultimately, you know, on Sukkot we rejoice. So it's very similar to Kohelet in that way, where there's this this anxiety and this it's kind of feels negative, and and it sounds pretty bad. But then at the end, there's all these calls to action about rejoicing. So um, there's definitely that that connection. They're very interesting. Yeah, very thought provoking. Um, can you also take tell us um, any other takeaways you got from Kohelet, or that you came away with after writing your book? Um, so first of all, I I would say that you know when I was when I approached people about the book, I sometimes have to tell them like it, it's weird for me because it's not my personality to be kind of pushy about the book and I and I sat but people were you know I was at a book fair that you Yerushalayim has a big uh, you know Shavuot safer that I was trying to tell people who were like Kohelet I don't know about that that's like you know somebody said that's depressing that's difficult that's boring and I was like okay I hear you I thought the same thing but I felt in a way that I wasn't I told them I didn't. In a way, I didn't feel that I wrote it. I felt that it was, you know, revealed to me in a way, not like in a prophetic way, but just like I was peeling away the layers of something that was already there. There's, you know, I, I you know, I, I kind of discovered it. I didn't create it. Um, and I think that's something that we can all, you know, appreciate in our Torah learning. Is that something that, you know, if there's things there that you, you might be the person who discovered an idea that, 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 you know, never was. I mean, I know that people have mentioned connections to Rishi before, but maybe I did it in a slightly more, you know. Uh, comprehensive way, maybe I caught some things that no one had connected the dots before between. But I think everyone out there who's, you know, I think that's, for me, that's the beauty of Torah living. You know, I, I, I'm personally, that's just like, that's what compels me. I, I'm not necessarily, I'll admit, I'm not really like a, a dafyomi, you know, kind of person who, who wants to learn the same thing everyone else. I need, I want to be learning what's, you know, that's what's interesting to me right now. And that's the thing. And so, but I think, you know, usually when I talk to someone long enough, I'll find out that they had some interesting idea or even just a question. You have the question. Maybe you don't have the answer, but you're the question. Even the questions can be interesting. So I, you know, I think that's something that's very uh, rewarding in this in this thing. Um, in terms of the book itself, I, I really do think it's it's the, the message is the message of hope and of tshuva, which is why I think it's also you know matim. It's you know it's good to be read around that time of year around in, in Tishrei. Um, we don't ever see what Adam Arishon thought after the whole sin. We don't see what he thought about what happened with his sons Kain and Hevel. We don't, he, he's, you know, pretty much mute from after the, you know, right after the, the garden episode. We don't see that Shlomo did tshuva, which is kind of strange considering that Chazal say, and I think it fits that he, you know, he wrote Shir Shirim in his youth and Mishalei when he's older and Kohelet in, in the end of his life. But we don't ever see a discussion of him. He's he's like, you know, God calls him out in a very, very harsh way in, in, in Sefer Melachim, but we don't see anything. But if you view Kohelet as Shlomo's tshuva as his, you know, um, advice to us on how to avoid those those errors, and specifically through some of those mitzvot that I, I talk about in the book. You know, it's I talk about tzitzit as being a very essential idea of how tzitzit can be helpful. Because again, tzitzit is something that maybe you know you think that's just some strings, but how could they help? But when if you view tzitzit in a way of in a in a kind of different way, this is the way that Ibn Ezra actually talks about of being the frayed ends of a garment, not strings attached. The garment isn't complete. It's kind of like also with abundance. You have you're wearing a garment, it's not complete. Perhaps you're gonna it's kind of like pay on a field. You know, you're gonna remember that the field doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. You got it from God. The garment also is like that. You remember the garment you receive from God like 
Adam Rishon got a garment after his sin. Um, I go into talking about the Yom Kippur service and how that also is kind of like a return to Gan Eden in a way. It's one time of year when when um, when the Kohen Gadol can really return to the stage, the state that Adam was like in the garden. Um, and there's other mitzvot as well. So the laws of the king, you know, in other words, these mitzvot that we have, and this, I guess, again, goes, speaks to your, your title. It's not, I, I don't believe in a, in the mitzvot of having, okay, I'll put it this way. I don't think tamay mitzvot is something that we need to um, be afraid of. I know that there are people who criticize the Rambam very harshly, and these are very great people. I actually wrote an essay about this uh, prohibition tradition a few years ago, where you have uh, Rav Kook, Rav Hirsch, and Rav Soloveitchik all, you know, attacking the Rambam in language, which is, you know, for someone like the Rambam, you can't believe they're using this language against the Rambam. I mean, it's it's harsh. It's just harsh language. But I'm fine. I don't I don't find a problem with the Rambam, you know, bringing out these Tamei Mitzvot, in because it helps us understand that God was giving these mitzvot to inspire us for a particular reason. And it doesn't, I don't think it, I don't find it that if the, if the mitzvah doesn't have a reason, it makes it all that more um, uh, special to me. When a doctor doesn't have a reason. I, there are people who find that. There are people who find those kinds of things who don't have a reason to be more special. For me, having, understanding what's going on. So the, but by looking at some of these mitzvot in their context um, and how they could help with the issues, I think that's where we go. If you know, if you, it, it, in other words, you can wear tzitzit and it's fine, but if tzitzit motivate you to understand your connection to God and your dependence among God, then how is that not going to possibly be more a more enriched experience? I mean, it's you know, you still show loyalty if you do mitzvot with understanding the reasons, but by looking at the by looking at the reasons for the mitzvot and understanding your if it helps you bring that connection. I mean, it's the same with sukkot. You could you can sit in a sukkah and you know just do because God said so and it's fine. That's not a bad thing, but you know if you do it because it helps you understand the risk of abundance and and all these things we were just talking about earlier, well, clearly that's going to be make it a little more significant in terms of what the ultimate goal of what the Torah is heading, uh, taking it for. So I think that's Kohelet. I think Kohelet is, is it's basically Shlomo's drusha, you know, to like say what's the, you know, his ethical will, so to speak, about what's, what's the point of, how, how, you know, what, what works in life and what doesn't work in life. And, and that's something that's really special to be able to have. That actually, you know, can give you hope. If you can get over the difficult language and the and the repetition and the contradictions and everything else, but it's there. It's it's not hiding. It's it's really in plain sight if you just if you read through the book. I I really share your uh, feeling about uh, the Tamei Mitzvot and there, when when you contextualize it also with history and there's so many levels of unpacking uh, the Mitzvot that it, I I can't see the harm in it. You know I I don't see why it would be. It would, it's amazing it, to me. It's an amazing inspiring thing to actually understand it and to compel us to improve ourselves as human beings. Um, so before we go, I would like everybody to just see the book again. This is Kohelet, A Map of Eden. I highly, highly recommend this book to everybody. It's a very uh, smooth reading. It's um, extremely insightful and it's something that you can easily grasp um, and at the same time, very deep. So I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was really a, very eye-opening and we're really excited about uh seeing more work from you hopefully in the future working on anything are you working on anything i am actually working on something which i think you guys would particularly be interested in when i get this going um i'm working on a book that actually started even before i was working on on kohelet and kohelet kind of fell into my lap as i mentioned uh it's a book about why avram was chosen but more specifically why the torah doesn't say why Avram was chosen or why you know avram chose god 
Um, and I think that that really lies at the heart of nearly every philosophical dispute in Judaism from the Tanakh until modern times. If you look talk about the Rambam, the Rambam had a perception of Avram, Rabbi Olevi had a perception of Avram, they were very different. Um, and, and I think that this, I talk a lot about, about Tamim, it's both, and the reason behind, what's the risk of Tamim? So I, I do think you mentioned, you know, you know, there are risks because you talk about reasons and what if those reasons are no longer true? That's the idea. You, know, you talk about the mitzvot coming from, you know, if the Korbanot, like the Rambam says, that because of the, you know, what happened in Egypt, well, it does have risk anymore, should we abandon the mitzvot? I'm not saying, it, I'm not denying there's risk, but I think that there's still a lot to be learned from them. So that's the book. It's, 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 a, it's about, about, a, about a third of the way through. I, I think the Kohelet season is probably going to, you know, slow down a little bit after Sukkot, and then hopefully I can, <laughs> uh, I can get back into uh, Avram. Um, I would love to be able to uh, speak to you guys. I hope that, you know, sure. I hope that A, I can finish it in a short enough time, and B, I hope your podcast continues to succeed long enough that I'm, <laughs> that I'm, I'm that I have finished the book while you're, while, you're still, while you're still doing this, because it's, it's a big project, but I really hope to get to it. Well, uh, it's getting a lot of love these days. Yeah. Like everyone is, you know, well, it's been... Uh, it's hot. It's hot. <laughs> it is. It's strange. It's strange. It's great. Good for me. It works out well for me, you know. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, congratulations on the book. Um very well said. A lot of thought-provoking ideas, a lot to think about, a lot to read about. Um, wishing you lots of success uh, with the book and further. And we're going to hopefully do that podcast in, down the line. For sure. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Awesome. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.